Beloved, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 13. And we're going to finish chapter 13 this morning by looking at this exceedingly timely exhortation from the Apostle Paul. By looking at and by hearing and receiving, I pray, words that we desperately need to hear and especially in the age in which we live. So I would ask you to stand with me as we read. We're going to begin in verse 11. We'll read through verse 14. Then we will pray and we will ask God's blessing as we unpack this text of Scripture. Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this word this morning, your holy word, written through the the, the pen of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as we come to this inerrant, infallible, perfect, truthful word, the truth, God, I pray that we would come with humble hearts. Lord God, I pray that we would draw near with just a willingness to hear what you have to say. Father, I pray that you would instruct us. I pray that you would make us wise from your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would, that you would make this word to dwell richly within us. I pray, Lord God, that you would use this word to the pulling down of strongholds. I pray that you would use this word to the praise of your holy name. I pray that you would use this word to point to the glory of Christ. I pray that you would use this word to arrest our hearts and our minds and to affect us deeply and very seriously. I pray that you would use this word to disabuse us of the thought that Christianity is a pastime in which we engage. And to see instead that faith in Christ is life. Father, as I stand to preach this word, I realize I am wholly inadequate to do so. That in myself I am a weak and fickle man and so i am praying lord god that by your spirit that you would make me an honorable vessel that you would grant me the unction of your holy spirit that i would speak the words that you would have me speak and so that the voice of christ might be heard in the preaching now i pray for this congregation and i ask that you would manifest your presence with us and that father our hearts would be opened by your spirit to receive these words and Lord, that we'd really hear them. That, Father, there wouldn't be any of us that would, that would say, well, I, I know all of this already. 
but instead, Lord God, that we would, these words would freshly affect our hearts and souls. May we not be like the church in Laodicea that thought themselves perfect and strong and in need of no thing, when in reality they were wretched and pitiable and blind. Lord, let us have hearts to receive your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, this morning we're coming to what is the apex of the instruction that we have been receiving from Paul in Romans chapter 12 and 13. This is the apex to it all. Through Paul's pen, God has been describing for us what it means for us to walk and to live as Christians in this present darkness, right? We're no longer a part of this present evil age. We know that, you know, Paul said to the, to the Galatians that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. We're no longer a part of this present evil age, but we've got to live in it, don't we? We've got to live in it. Like none of us just gets to opt out of life on this earth. We've got to live in this world until the day comes, the day that was appointed for us before the foundation of the world, that we would breathe our last and be in the presence of the Lord God. We have to live in this world. And the question is, how do we do it? And Paul's been exhorting us. He's been teaching us how it is that we live for God's glory in this, in this present evil age, how we live for the praise of his name, how we live in a distinctive way, right? A distinctive way that demonstrates both the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel, right? To transform a wretched sinner such as I and make us a child of the living God, right? And so what Paul is doing in this text this morning is this. He's having given us all this instruction. He's now gathering up everything that he's exhorted us and commanded us to do in these previous two chapters, and he's explaining to us in these few verses the overarching reason for why it is we are to work out our salvation in Christ. He's telling us why that's so vital, why it is so important, right? As those who've been delivered from the wages of sin, as those who have been delivered from the, the, you know, the, the debt of sin, which is eternal death, those who've been freed from sin's dominion, right, and irresistible power, those who have received the indwelling Holy Spirit, he's told us we're to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, that we don't have ownership over ourselves anymore, right? Christ has purchased us by his blood. And so the, the, the right thing, the, the act of spiritual worship, the, the most reasonable thing is that we would present ourselves, all of us, the entirety of who we are to God as a living sacrifice, as an act of worship. That not only that, we should have our minds, seek to have our minds renewed by, you know, the word of God and not be conformed to this world. And we're to live that out. We're to love God supremely. And in truth, we're to hate evil and and love good. We're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in real and meaningful ways. We are to be gracious to our enemies. Even though we don't want to be, maybe, in our flesh. We're to be gracious to our enemies because God was gracious to us when we were yet enemies of His, right? We're to be, we're to be seeking their ultimate good, which is the salvation of their souls. We're not to return evil 
for evil, but to overcome evil with good. We're to seek to be good citizens. We are to live peaceably with everyone as much as we can and obey the governing authorities that God has instituted until in good conscience we cannot or we would be sinning against God. Our lives are to be marked by biblical love. By the kind of love that God has shown to us. We are debtors to every single person in the world to love them. Right? All this ethical instruction. All this, you know, all these commands from Paul, right? They are all rooted in our personal experience of salvation, right? They're all rooted in our personal experience of justification by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to live this way, not to be saved. I'll say that again. It's probably the tenth time I've said it in this text. We are not to live this way in order to be saved. We are to live this way. Why? Because we are saved, right? And Christ is our sovereign king and who has purchased us as his own. And so now we come to Paul kind of tying a bow on all of this. This is the apex of of 12 and 13. He's given us this vital instruction. He's given us these exhortations. He's given us these commands. And now he gives us the essential motivation for obedience. And it's very simple. It's not some convoluted thing. Here's why you are to obey these commands. Here's why you are to walk as light in the midst of darkness. Here's why you are to walk walk in such a way that points to the glory of God and the power of the gospel. And here it is. It's because the kingdom is coming. Christ is coming. Wake up and realize the day in which you live. The day is coming for the full revelation of the kingdom of God and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the next great event on God's redemptive plan. In in God's redemptive plan. That is the next great event. Think about it. As far back as Genesis chapter 3, God promised a Redeemer who would undo the, undo the ruin and the pollution of sin. True? True? Right? God called Abraham and he established through him the nation of Israel through whom would come the Messiah in the fullness of time. Right? According to the sovereign plan of the triune God, the Lord Jesus Christ indeed came into this world. He came as a man. He lived a life of perfect obedience and submission to the Father. He offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God Almighty, awaiting the day when he will return and he will consummate God's eternal kingdom. And in the meantime, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit has been sent into this world to convict men and women of their sin, to irresistibly draw elect sinners to Christ, to regenerate dead hearts and give them eternal life through repentance and faith in Christ. This age between the coming of Christ and his return, it will last until every elect soul has been saved and then the end will come. But beloved, the end is coming. That's the day for which we live. And we've got to live in light of that approaching day. That's Paul, the heart of Paul's message to us this morning. And so I want to look at this text under two headings, okay? I want to look at this text under two headings. And I think it will be very helpful for us to do so, okay? We need to look under these headings. What we know and then how we must live considering what we know. What we know and how we must live according 
to what we know. See, Paul begins here with declarative statements. He begins with statements of fact about us. Here's what's true about you, he says. And he says, therefore, this is how you ought to live, right? And underlying all of this is a great urgency and an earnestness on Paul's behalf. Like these are words of urgency. And they're they're a call to resolve and to determination, right? So the first thing Paul does is this. He reminds us of what we know. Look again at what he says in, in verse 11 and then in the first half of verse 12. He says, besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now Paul says some things to us here. Some very specific things by which he he wants to draw us in, right? First thing he says is this. He says, you know, you know the time. You know the time. Or at least we should, right? He's saying, you know the time. You know the age. You know the season, the epoch. You know the, the era in which you are living. You're not in the dark about that. You're not in the dark about human history and where it's going. You know what's up. Your eyes have been opened. You understand the importance and the significance of the times in which you live. Can I tell you what, beloved? One of the marked differences between Christians and the spiritually blind and the dead in this world is understanding the time. Secularists look at history. They look at the age in which we live and they're ignorant of its significance. They, they, you hear them speak, right? And they, they usually boil down to like four categories or so. You'll hear them speak and they talk of time and history as being just linear. That, that time is just this line that's going to stretch out into this, um, you know, unforeseen and, and illimitable future. It's just going to keep on going until finally man evolves into perfection. You've got to be Looney Tunes to believe that. There are others, right? They will look at the age in which we live and they say, well, history really is cyclical. It's just cyclical. You know, you see these great nations and, and everything that have risen and fallen, the great empires and the, and the great dynasties. And so time is viewed exclusively in humanistic terms, just like cycle after cycle, again, stretching on into an unseen future. Others look at history and they just see it as a product of chance. Like there's nothing, you know, there's, it's, it's just a product of chance. It's just, you know, nobody can really discern anything that's going on. It's just, you know, however things go, they go. And still others say that time and history just have no discernible purpose at all. (laughs) You just look at it, it's like, this is all a cosmic joke that we live here on this planet. And none of it really matters. You know, it's going nowhere. It's got no discernible purpose. History just is. Time just is. Right? That's what seculars think. But not Christians. Not Christians. We're no longer under the sinful delusions that plague the secularists in our world. We know the time. We know the age. We know the epoch that we are living in. We know 
that we are living in the last stages of human history. We are in that time between Christ's ascension into heaven and his return. We know that all of human history is in the hands of God and that he is directing it according to his will. And moreover, we know, we know that human history is purposeful. It's not just chance happening. It's not absent of any meaning. We know that human history is purposeful and that it is moving inexorably toward the day when our Savior and Lord and King is revealed from heaven to judge the living and the dead and to consummate His glorious kingdom. We know it. We know it. How do we know it? Here's how we know. Because we have heard and believed the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he said in, for instance, John chapter 5 and starting in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We believe Christ when he said those words. Think about it. We know that we're in the age of gospel proclamation. Even now, when the word of God is being preached and the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ is being heard, the dead, the spiritually dead among us in this world are being raised unto life, right? Like he says at the very beginning of this. But we also know that this age isn't going to last forever. That it's going to come to an end. And when it does, Christ is going to execute judgment. That the day of the Lord is drawing near and that judgment's going to take place either for eternal good or for eternal evil. We know the times because we've heard and believed the words of the Apostle Peter. When he said, beginning in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. We know the age in which we live. We know that it's the time between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that the next and the final stage in the redemptive plan of God is the day of the Lord. All this we know, right? And therefore, Paul says this. We must also know that the hour has come for us to wake from sleep. Now, why does Paul say that? Why does he say that? It's not like Paul just pulls this out of nowhere. Okay, let's, let's make sure we understand that. It's not like, like Paul is just, you know, looking for something to say at the end of his letter. So he happens to pull this out. No, there's a very real concern that Paul has here. And that very real concern is this, is that you can truly be saved and you can be asleep at the wheel. You can truly be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and you can be completely oblivious to, to what's going on around you and you can live an oblivious life. 
That's what he's getting at here. There's a very real concern and possibility that we can, we can fail to live as we ought to in the light of the times in which we live. And Paul's concerned about that. He's not concerned about orthodoxy. He's not concerned necessarily about our doctrinal understanding. What he's concerned about is this, is that we'll become lukewarm. It's that we'll become desensitized. It's that we'll become just anesthetized from everything that's going on around us. Now is not the time. Now is not the time to be spiritually slumbering or dozing or drowsing. It's time to be awake. Now here's the deal. We all know, don't we? We all know the attractiveness of sleep. How many of you found it easy to get out of bed this morning? Right. Huh? As you get older, it's even harder to, to get out of bed when you're in a good sleep. You know what I'm saying? We all know the attractiveness of sleep. We know, look, when you're in your comfortable bed and, 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 you know, when the covers are just right and your body's just the right temperature, you know, and your, your face is cool. And you've got that slight, sweet breeze that's blowing over you or four fans pointed at you, however you sleep, whatever, right? But you're just, everything is just right, right? You're perfectly comfortable. In fact, we have million-dollar industries, don't we, whose goal is to give you perfect sleep, to give you that perfect state of inactivity, that, that, that loss of consciousness and responsiveness to everything that's going on around you. We will pay buku money for that, won't we? Physical sleep is a good thing. I like it. Some of you got up this morning planning your nappy nap this afternoon. Physical sleep's great. Spiritual sleep is deadly. It is deadly. It is dangerous. And we slip into it far too easily. We slip into spiritual slumber and inactivity and unresponsiveness way too easily. And Paul is calling us to something better. Spiritual slumber, moral apathy, listen, they are completely irreconcilable to our calling as the people of God. But it happens, doesn't it? Doesn't it? There are some in this church that are spiritually slumbering. I don't know who. It's not like I've got a list in my office, you know, those that are awake and those that are slumbering and I got, you know, everybody penciled in. That's not what I'm saying. But I know that we're a church like, I mean, we're a faithful church, but we're a church like any other church. And if there are people sleeping in Rome, I know there are people sleeping here. It happens. Our outward circumstances are, are kind of easy. There seems to be no challenge to our faith. All of our needs maybe seem to be met. Everything's at ease. Everything seems well spiritually, you know? There's no real striving for holiness, no real effort in my life towards spiritual things. Maybe I'm making allowance for besetting sin in my life. Maybe I'm just giving myself a pass. But that's when we're most likely to be seduced into spiritual slumber. We... We become spiritually sedated and insensitive. We become sluggish and we become dulled. We take our eyes 
off the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The very thing for which Paul strived. Paul strived, but we don't have to. He's an apostle after all. Become consumed with the same desires. Motivated by the same desires as the world that Christ says is on the broad road to destruction. Think about that. We become preoccupied as of first importance with those things that are fading and that are going to pass away. Think about the spiritually dead in our world, beloved. Just think about them for a moment. Think about what floats their boat. Think about what drives them and motivates them, right? Because can I tell you what? If you step back and you consider it, what you realize is this, is that their thoughts of life are so shallow. Ours were too when we didn't know Christ. But their thoughts apart from Christ are very shallow, their thoughts of life. Life to them consists in just having a good time, moving from good time to good time. A life of being entertained, right? A life, of, a life of stacking up life experiences. Of doing whatever seems good to us. Of, of you know, making a name for ourselves or getting everything we want. Making it to the top. Getting your best life now. I love what John MacArthur says about that. He says, your best life is now if your next life is in hell. You know what the problem with all of those things are? Is they're exclusively self-focused, aren't they? Aren't they? They're self-focused. There's no consideration of God in it at all. There's no consideration for what is good and righteous. There's no consideration of what's pleasing to God or any consideration of Christ. Beloved, hear me when I say this. Because I've been there before. It is all too easy to be seduced into spiritual sleepwalking without even realizing it. Well, how do you know? How do you discern that? If that's a dangerous thing, how do we know? How do I know if I'm spiritually sleepwalking? Well, here you go. I'll just, I'll just give you some things to think about. Look at your priorities. Look at them. Examine them honestly. What means the most to you? What has the greatest influence and pull in your life? What demands the most of you? What's attractive to you? What fills up your days? Take a look at your exchange rate. What do I mean by that? Well, life is full of making exchanges, isn't it? Cost-benefit exchange, right? Right? Like when you go into the store, you make a determination whether those drumstick ice cream cones are worth six twenty-seven. I'm like, they're worth eight bucks at least. I'll get them, right? But, but in all seriousness, you, you make a cost-benefit analysis in everything that you do, whether you realize it or not. You determine what you're willing to exchange in order to get something else. What are you willing to exchange about Christ in order to get something of a fleshly nature? Hmm? What are you willing to exchange that belongs to Jesus alone in order to satisfy some desire in your heart? 
What's of most value? Is it Christ and His coming kingdom, His church, faithfulness to Him above all else, or is it something else? And can I tell you, the signs of being, being spiritually asleep, they reveal themselves in significant ways if you have eyes to see them. You don't pray much, if at all. But when you do, your prayer is usually mechanical or dutiful or a list of God do this. You don't really read the Word of God much, if at all. And when you do, it's a duty. And you don't apply it to yourself or allow it to read you. It doesn't hold your attention. Your love for Christ grows cold. Your love for the things of Christ grows cold. You no longer sense the need for Him that you once had. You no no longer have concern for the souls of the lost that you once had. You're spiritually asleep when you can come to worship, if you do, and and your singing is detached, and your heart's just not in it, and it seems like everybody else is singing something with which you are unfamiliar in your soul. When you hear the Word of God preached, it no longer has the weight, or the attractiveness, or the unction that it once had, and it's not the preacher, it's you. The fellowship of the saints becomes drab and uninviting. You're more at home with worldlings than you are with those who love Christ. And if that's you, I'm imploring you this morning to wake up. Wake up! Shake yourself out of your spiritual slumber. Hear this wake-up call from the Lord Jesus Christ. Cry out to the Lord to awaken you and revive you and that the Holy Spirit would make you sensitive to the Lord once more. You may think it's no big deal. You're wrong. Know this. The enemy of your soul, he never sleeps. He never takes a break. He's never like, well, today, you know what? It's Labor Day. I'm taking the day off. He doesn't take a break. He's constantly prowling around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And don't say to yourself, well, tomorrow I really am going to get to this. Or in a season in my life, I'm really going to get to this. And I'm going to come to my senses. And I'm going to get serious about Christ. And I'm going to, you know, get serious about the days in which I live. Stop planning and get to it. Stop planning and get to it. J.C. Ryle, in his thoughts for young men, wrote these words. He said, tomorrow is the devil's day. But today is God's. Satan doesn't care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions if only they are determined to be done, what? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Discern the times. Man, wake up. And here's why. Paul says, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. And the day's at hand. You know what? You, you, we can't sleepwalk through life because our salvation is nearer to us now than the day in which we first believed. Now, I want you to notice this again. Paul is talking to Christians. He's not talking to those that are outside the faith. He's talking to you and me. 
He's saying, listen, our salvation is not yet complete. Now make no mistake, right? The penalty of our sins has already been forgiven. Our guilt has been borne away by Christ. The wrath that we deserve has been extinguished by His perfect sacrifice on the cross. We've been justified by Jesus. And now there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been saved, right? We have been saved. We've received forgiveness. We've got, we've received the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. We've got a new heart now that longs to obey and serve God. The gift of the Holy Spirit who unites us inseparably to Christ, right? We are saved. We have been saved right now. But it's not only have we been saved, it's also true that we are being saved, aren't we? We're being saved right now from the present power of sin in our lives. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin in our lives through our union to Jesus Christ as we grow in grace and grow in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ and pursue sanctification and practical holiness. The very things, for instance, that Paul has been describing for us throughout Romans 12 and, and 13, right? So we are saved. We have, been sa- we have been saved. We are being saved, right? But beloved, that's not the whole of salvation. We will be saved as well. And that final salvation that we have yet to experience is what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, look, man, we're looking to the day when sin's eradicated and when death is destroyed, praise God, and when mortality put on, puts on immortality and when corruption puts on incorruption and when we no longer see through a glass dimly, but we see Christ in all of his glory face to face. Amen. That's the day we're looking for. That's the day we are living for. That salvation's close at hand. And so we need to live in light of it. Our salvation's not complete, but it's going to be soon. And knowing that, we do that knowing that the night is far gone and the day is at hand. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. You know what I know? I know this is true. It's true of me. It's true of you probably as well. Sometimes it look, we look at our world and it doesn't seem like the night's far gone, does it? It feels like we are in the middle of the dark, right? It, 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 it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to become, you know, frustrated. It's easy to become overcome a little bit. I mean, these are dark days, right? They're days of ignorance and spiritual deadness. They're days of multiplied and horrific sin. They're the days of, these are the days of spiritual delusion and the darkness of Satan's sway and spiritual corruption and confusion and darkness in professing churches. Paul talks about it in Romans 1, right? The idolatry and dishonorable passion, sexual immorality and perversion, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, right? And we're inventors of evil, he says. We look at our world and it feels like, man, could it get any worse? Actually, yes. But there's that old saying, right? It's always darkest what? Before dawn. It's always darkest before dawn. And beloved, even now, the rays of the light of Christ are piercing 
this present darkness. Aren't they? Look, we know that's true. How do we know that? Because the light pierced the darkness and shone on us. Isn't that true? Look, we were once lost in blackest night, ignorant and foolish, thinking we knew the way and asleep, you know, in the sin that was taking us to the grave. Some of us were miserable in the midst of it. You know, our lives were horrific. We hated them. And for others of us, man, we were, we were doing all right. We were rejoicing on our way to hell. But praise God, God opened our eyes to see the worthlessness of what we once treasured, right? He shined in the midst of our darkness to bring us to life. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ has come. He shined the light of His glory into this darkened world so that from Jerusalem and through Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world, the light of the gospel even now is piercing the darkness of the night. And it's far gone. Our earthly pilgrimage, it's a short one. And I want you to think about this. The night is far gone and the day is almost here. Our our earthly pilgrimage is a short one. And listen to me, this is the only time that we will ever have to live and to labor for the glory of God in this darkened world. We're closer to, than ever to the return of Christ, closer than ever to the end of the age. It's almost here. It's the next great event on the timetable of God. So Paul is saying, look, wake up. You know it's time to be awake. And the fact that this day is right around the corner ought to be the overarching and determinative motivation to you to worship and to pursue holy living and to pursue faithful ministry and to, to, to pour yourself out for the sake of Christ and not your own kingdom and to passionately pursue Him. We can't sleep or slumber. If we would please the Lord and be useful to Him, then we cannot sleep. You know what? God's enemies, again, they don't sleep. And neither can we. Christ is coming. We don't know when. We have no idea. But we're always to be conscious of that reality. In fact, I love what Henry Alford says about this. He says, listen, on the certainty of the event, our faith is grounded. On the certainty of it. On the certainty that Christ is coming back, our faith is grounded. By the uncertainty of the time, our hope is stimulated and our watchfulness is aroused. We know He's coming, we just don't know when. And therefore, we need to be ready. We need to live in such a way as we will not be ashamed. Think about this now. We've got to live in such a way that we will not be ashamed at Christ's coming. Now, some of you are instinctively saying to yourself right now, that's impossible. You can't possibly be ashamed when Jesus Christ returns. That, that doesn't make sense. I've never heard that before. That, that doesn't make sense to me. There's no way that we could possibly be ashamed when Jesus comes back. That's those people that are lost. They're going to be ashamed. No, that's not true. Is it possible for, for a Christian to be ashamed at Christ's coming? It sure is. 
But love, well, the apostle of love says this. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Is it possible for a Christian to be ashamed when Christ shows up, when Christ returns? Yes, indeed. Now, I know all of us want to have confidence as we look forward to Christ's coming. So, here's the appropriate question. How then must we live? How then must we live? And the Apostle Paul tells us. Look at this, man. You know this already. Like This is the thing. You already know what he's going to say here. But we need to hear it. He says, starting at the end of verse 12, So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. How should we live? Just like what he says here in verses 12b through 14. That's how we're to live. I want you to notice what Paul does here. He tells us we've got to cast off the works of darkness and then put on the armor of light. And this is militant language. Okay? This is military language that he's using here. Paul does that a lot. In all of his epistles, Paul uses, you know, military and athletic language. And he does so to drive home the point that all of life, until Christ returns, beloved, is a great race or a raging battle. It's a fight. It's a competition. The time for rest, the time for kicking up and relaxing, listen, that's in the future. But while we're in this, these bodies of flesh, right, we must wage war. And we've got to be, we've got to be determined and decisive. Those words, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Those are decisive words. It means cast off the works of darkness once and for all. And put on the armor of light and keep it on. That's the idea here. J.C. Ryle says, again, I love J.C. Ryle, he says, The true Christian is called to be a soldier and must behave as such from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. He's not meant to live a life of religious ease, indolence, and security. He must never imagine for a moment that he can sleep and doze along the way to heaven like one traveling in an easy carriage. If the Bible is the rule of his faith and practice... He will find his course laid down very plainly in this matter. He must fight. The principal fight of the Christian is with the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are his never-dying foes. These are the three chief enemies against whom he must wage war. He must fight the flesh. Even after conversion, he carries with him a nature prone to evil. He must fight the world. The subtle influence of the mighty enemy must be daily resisted. And without a daily daily battle can never be overcome. And he must fight the devil. That old enemy of mankind is not dead. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, he's been going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it and striving to compass one great end, which is the ruin of man's soul. Man, there's a warfare. And this is wartime. And none of us can be spiritual pacifists. 
and leaving it to somebody else to do our fighting. Our enemies are relentless. And they're not flesh and blood. They're the foes, right? They're the forces of spiritual wickedness that want to destroy us, right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? The rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, right? That's the fight we're in. And so Paul says, look, put off immorality and put on the armor of light. And his point here is not just the negation of sin. Stop doing bad things. It is put on the armor of light and pursue holiness. I want you to think for a moment about what all of these works of darkness have in common. I mean, don't we know? I mean, let's just be honest. Can we be honest? Read them again. Like orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. Now, is there anybody here in this room that doesn't know that those are evil things? Right? We all know that, right? We all would look at that and say, yo, those are, those are reprehensible sins. Every one of them, right? None of us is like, well, I'm not so sure about whatever, right? No, we know it's wrong. We know it's wrong. So what's the point here? Because you don't need me to define these for you. You know what they are. And you know, you know that all of them are works of the flesh. They're, so what holds them together? What makes them common? What, what connects, for instance, you know, jealousy with orgies? For instance, that seems like a big stretch. Well, here's what, ha- what holds them all in common. They're all full of self-indulgence, born of selfish will, aren't they? Aren't they? They're all corrupted and polluted. They're all fueled by self-preoccupation and by self-centeredness. And all of them are destructive of faith. And they're destructive of communion with God. And they're destructive of growth in grace. They're destructive of the body of Christ. All of them are destructive. And the question is, when you look at those, you've got to ask yourself, and it's suppo- you're supposed to make you ask this question that's intuitively obvious. Would you rather satisfy your flesh for a moment doing some wretched thing, or, or would you rather satisfy your soul for an eternity? Which would you rather do? See, when you put sin in its lowest denominational sort of form and you compare it with the blessing that is walking with Christ in obedience, you see how absolutely foolish it is to choose sin in any way. Don't you? Don't you? That's the point here. Would you rather satisfy your flesh for a moment or your soul for an eternity? We all know the right answer to that. But listen to me. I want you to, I want you to hear me when I say this. No Christian is immune to these temptations of the fallen nature. No one. You might say, well, not me, Bubba. I'm very tidy, buttoned up, and I have no problems, thank you very much. I've been walking with Jesus for 57 years, 6 months, and 3 days. And you clearly haven't, young pup. You might say, eh, not me. But I would point you, I would point you 
to Paul's words to the Corinthians. Who were guilty of these very sins? The very sins that plagued the nation of Israel. And he said to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these words, We must not put God, put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Here we are. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, that he's impervious, Take heed lest he fall. There's at no point where we can let down our guard. There's no point where, at which the desires of our flesh, our sinful nature, no longer constitute a danger for us, beloved, even if we've been Christians for 50 years. So Paul says, cast off these works of darkness. Cast off these works of, of, of the sinful nature of the flesh. And instead, he says, put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. What is that armor of light? Well, in a quite similar passage to this, written to the Thessalonian church, we read this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 11. See if you can hear the similarity here. Paul writes, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we awake or sleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, when we look at those two passages and we compare them together, we go, okay, armor of light. Armor of light. He's talking about being awake. He's talking about the day. He's talking about, you know, you know the time and all that. And we see this comparison here with, with, with the Thessalonians. And so if we do some, you know, some, some work there in math, Basically, we can say, okay, the army of light, armor of light, at least as Paul describes it over here with the Thessalonians, is, is equal to the breastplate of faith and love and, and the helmet of hope. The hope of salvation. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. The breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation, right? So the armor of light we know, or the armor of light we know, at least in some way, is, is, is composed of faith and hope and love, right? I mean, that makes sense, right? Those are the big three in the Christian faith. Paul describes that in, you know, Corinthians. He just talks about later in Romans. Like, those are the big three. Faith, hope, and love. But then we come back to this text and we see that Paul says then, after he says, put on the armor of light, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look at that and if we're making the connections properly, we should say, well, then the armor of light also equals Christ. It means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The armor of light is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the armor of light is the Lord Jesus Christ. And from Thessalonians in particular, we see that it's putting on Christ as it regards faith, hope, and love. Stay with me now. So to put on Christ means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ or to put on the armor of light means 
to put on Christ and put on faith in and hope in and love for Christ, right? Put on faith in and hope in and love for Christ. So, so putting on the armor of light is putting on Christ and immersing yourself and engaging yourself in the very real union with Christ that you have through the Holy Spirit of God. You've been joined with Him, right? In His death and His burial and His resurrection so that in Him you might be raised to walk in what? The newness of life. That's a reality. How then, joined to Christ, could we possibly continue in what Christ came to destroy? We can't, right? And so Paul says, put on the armor of light, put on Christ. How do you do that? How do you do that? Like, you don't just go to your closet, obviously, and there's your, you know, armor of light, and you take it out and you put it on, unless you're Bible man, right? I mean, nobody does that. How do you put on Christ? It's an exercise of faith. It's an exercise of faith, beloved. you, you, You put on Christ by availing yourself of the means of grace that produce faith, hope, and love. That's how you do it. How do I put on Christ in the morning? I put on Christ in the morning by availing myself of the means of grace that produce in me faith and hope and growing love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Well, what do we know? We know that faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing what? The Word of Christ. And so we put on Christ by reading the Word of God. We put on Christ by hearing the Word of God. We put on Christ by receiving the Word of God and applying the Word of God and letting it dwell in us richly. We, we put on Christ by appropriating the truth of the Word of God and storing it in our hearts. That's one way in which we put on Christ. We put on hope in our salvation as we see not only the the hope of salvation that Christ has won for us, that coming salvation, but the way that He moves us along that path day by day, right? In other words, here's the deal. We, We put on hope as we see the promises of Christ that He has made to us. Right? To never leave us nor forsake us. That He has all authority in heaven and earth. We see those things, we see those promises fulfilled as we, as we learn and trust in the promises of Christ, as we make them the, the meat of our prayer toward the Lord, and then we see God's provision for those very things for which we prayed. And our hope is strengthened. We're promised this hope of salvation in the future and our hope is strengthened because day by day we see God fulfilling His promises over and over and over again. Maybe it's not day by day. Maybe it's month by month. Maybe you just need to sit for a moment and think of all the ways that God has been faithful to you. Maybe those moments when you didn't think He was and you had no clue what He was up to until six months later. You avail yourself of what makes for love, right? Love for Christ grows as we meditate what? Upon His love. It grows as we meditate upon His grace. It grows as we meditate upon His His great affection for His people as revealed in His atoning work and His continuing work, right? His atoning work on the cross, but also His intercession now. 
and is shepherding of our souls as the mediator and the faithful high priest, the one who forever secures our salvation before the throne of God. We put on Christ as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. We put on Christ when we are faced with temptation and we are faced with trial and in the power of the Holy Spirit, alone by faith, we say no. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And we say it with a full heart and with clear eyes. That's how we put on Christ. We put on Christ when we come to worship Him as God alone. We put on Christ when we do those things that make for His pleasure. When we gladly lay down our lives to serve Him. When we gladly lay down our lives to serve our loved ones. We put on Christ when we act like Him. When we follow in His footsteps. When we do as He leads and directs us and guides us to do. We put on Christ. Put on Christ and don't make any provision for the flesh. Don't be seduced by it. Don't give it any thought. Don't make a plan for sin. Don't give it any welcome in your life. Don't even let it stay overnight. Cast off the works of darkness and put on Christ. Put on the armor of light. That's a call to decisive action, isn't it? Cast off, put on. In fact, that's the pattern we see in Scripture. You cast off and then you put on. It's not just cast off and it's not cover up. You know the difference, right? What I'm getting at, it's not just asceticism. Well, I'm just going to cast off all these things that I've been doing, and I'm just going to try to be neutral. Neither is it, I'm going to continue in my sin, but throw the cloak of Jesus over top of me, right? I love what Spurgeon says about that. God did not, Christ did not come to save you in your sins, but to save you from your sins, right? No, instead it's take off and put on. It's the very kind of thing that Paul said to the Ephesians where he says in, in chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Just put it off and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on Christ. Put on His holiness. Put on His humility. Put on His compassion and His wisdom. Put on His forgiveness Put on His righteousness and His zeal. Put on His love. Put on Christ. And walk properly as as in the daytime. Walk properly in the day, in light of the day that's coming. And one more thing before we come to a close. Beloved, I want you to see this. Clothing ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, it's not merely the alternative to gratifying our, our sinful desires. Okay, it's not the alternative to it. Clothing ourselves with Christ is the means by which we keep from gratifying sinful desires. It's the way we kill sinful desire and keep it from clinging to us. When we put on the armor of light daily, when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is impossible for the works of darkness to cling to us as much as it was impossible for the works of darkness to cling to Him. Putting on the Lord Jesus is not merely an option for the Christian. It's essential. You know the time in which we live. Look. 
praise God, the battle's going to soon be over. For some of us, it'll be over sooner than others. For some of us, it'll be over when we breathe our last breath and we open our eyes to see Jesus in all of his splendor. And for some of us, that day's coming sooner than for others. But no matter what, the battle is soon going to be over. And it won't be long before the day will come when Satan will be fully and finally put under Christ's footstool. Right? Our warfare will be over and the Lord Jesus Christ will grant us the victor's crown. But until then, we've got to discern the times. Until then, we need to robe ourselves in the armor of light and we must fight. Until our last breath. Fight the good fight of faith. For those of you that are here this morning, I realize this message really hasn't been for you at all. And it isn't. If you're not in Christ, this message is not for you. And and it's not really what we might call an evangelistic text at all. But God used it that way in the life of Augustine. One of the, you know, great fathers of the faith. And perhaps God may use it that way for you. In the summer of 386 A.D., A.D. 386, that's how you're supposed to say it, Augustine and some of his buddies decided they would go to Milan, Italy, and they were going to hear the great Ambrose preach. And they went and they were hearing him preach, and some of Augustine's friends got really bored. They were just, they couldn't take it. You know, they, they would hear it, and it was just like the grating of nails on a chalkboard. You know, they just didn't want to hear Ambrose preach anymore. And so they left and they went back to Rome. But Augustine stayed on. Augustine couldn't leave. He was wrestling very deeply, wrestling, you know, deep in his spirit, deep in his soul. Augustine, Augustine was a wretched man. Augustine was a fornicator. He was, you know, he was just a debauched guy. He was an indulger of the pleasures and the desires of the flesh. And although he had grown up in a Christian home, he was a thorough rejecter of Christ. But in the mercy of God, Augustine had a praying mother, Monica. And by his grace, he did bring him to sit under the preaching, the faithful preaching of Ambrose. Ambrose was preaching through the book of Genesis, believe it or not. Preaching through the book of Genesis. And after hearing one of those sermons, Augustine retired to the garden where he was staying. And he tried to pray. He tried to pray. Beside him on the bench where he was attempting to pray was a copy of Paul's epistles. He had been trying to read them but they couldn't keep his interest at all. He'd been trying to study them and and they just, they were were as, you know, a foreign language to him. And he was so overcome with the wretchedness of his soul. He he was in that horrible place where you know the, the horrid nature of your sin and you just don't know what to do. So there he was, he's sitting in the garden. Can't, you know, the epistles of Paul are not holding his attention. And he just threw himself next to the bench. And he just started to cry convulsively, uncontrollably. 
begin to cry. And it was while he was crying that he heard some children a courtyard over that were playing a game. Some kind of, you know, game that roaming kids play, I guess. And over there, they were repeating the Latin phrase, tola lege, tola lege. And Augustine heard them. It means take up and read, take up and read. And he heard them and he picked up Paul's epistles. And this is entirely, obviously, by the sovereign grace of God. I never recommend that anyone get saved by just doing one of these. And then, you know, but he just picked up the epistle, the epistles of Paul that he was reading. And he happened to open it to Romans chapter 13. And he read the second half of verse 13 through 14 where it says, Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And at that moment, he was converted. At that moment, he was saved. And it became one of the, he became one of the greatest theologians in all of history. He put on Christ and he refused to satisfy the sins of the flesh. Now, why am I saying this to you who are not yet in Christ in this room? Not because you could become the next great theologian in history. That's not why. Friend, listen to me. The power of sin in your life, its irresistible control over you, the wretchedness of it and the wickedness of it and the just the dead end of it all. The power of sin in your life points to your slavery and to your condemnation. Just like it did in Augustine's life. The wages of sin is death, Scripture says. It's eternal death. It's separation from God in hell. Augustine knew that. I'm telling you, that's what Scripture teaches. You know it too. And perhaps what you need to do this morning is let your sin, the power of the sin that's in your life, point you to and drive you to Christ. To find the forgiveness that you need and the reconciliation with God that you need and the new life in Christ that He alone offers. God did it for Augustine. He can do it for you. But you need to hear. And you need to respond. Beloved, the day of the Lord's coming. The day of the Lord is coming. So let's all of us trust in Christ as Savior and put on Christ and walk before Him in faithfulness as Lord before He comes in all of His splendor. Fight the good fight, clothed in the armor of light, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we desperately need You this morning to apply the truth of these words to our hearts. Lord God, we can hear them. We can even understand the, the meaning of the words, but unless you apply them in the power of the Holy Spirit to our souls, they won't have the effect in us that they must have in order for them to be of benefit to us. Lord God, I pray that every single soul in here that knows Christ as Savior and Lord, Father, that we would all be evaluating ourselves in light of, you know, this, this concern that we can fall into spiritual slumber. I pray that every one of us would be 
you know, desiring to be awake and alive and for our hearts to be, you know, arrested by the Lord and that you would bring revival and strength and, and, and faithfulness to our hearts. God, we would turn away from those things that are leading us into slumber. And we would embrace, Lord God, the blessing that alone is found in you. I pray for those that are in this room today that don't know Christ, who are yet, Father, under the the yoke of their sins and whose sins will lead them inevitably to hell unless they repent and believe in Christ. I pray, Father God, that by your Spirit you would take that hardened, shriveled heart that's in them and you would make it alive. And Lord God, you would make them to see that they are sinners before you, under your condemnation, deserving of hell and death. But you have made the way of salvation. And that way is Jesus Christ, who lived the life they couldn't live, of obedience, who died the death that they even now deserve, and who rose again on the third day to prove that your justice had been vindicated through his redemptive work. And I pray, Lord God, that you would draw them to you irresistibly, that you would give them the faith that they need to believe, that they would stop, you know, for those that know the truth and have known it for a while and yet have resisted submitting themselves to Christ, I pray, Lord God, that today would be the day that you overcome by your superior power the stubbornness of their wills. And you bring them to faith. You bring them to Christ. You break them in order to shape them and remake them in the Lord Jesus. So be with us now. Give us, you know, a heart to respond to these words. Lord God, to hear them and really want to do them. To hear this challenge, this urgency in Paul's voice. And to respond with resolve and with determination like we need to. Lord God, I pray you take these words and apply it to our souls. Whatever's dross, make it blow away. Make it just, whatever's chaff, let it blow away. But what is true, what is good, what is holy, what is righteous, Lord God, let it be inescapable and let it pierce every heart, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.